2: So I decided that I'm going to go after the monkeys. So I found out Peter Tork was teaching music on the west side of Manhattan. So I invited him to one of my Happy Together shows.
0: Here we come, Welcome down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, with the monkeys!
2: I sold 28,000 tickets in Chicago. I sell 30,000 tickets in Detroit at Pine Nob.
0: Cheer up, sleepy jeans. Oh, what can it mean to a day
3: dream believer and a homecoming queen? That was something that Rod heard. You know, it was a line. That, that was the line. And Rod heard that we were in Vanilla Fudge and we were doing great. We had uh, three three albums on the charts, a hit single, and we took a new band on on tour with us. His name was Led Zeppelin.
4: Welcome to The Rock Podcast. I'm Denny Somak with my co-host, Anita Gevinson. Anita, hey, Denny. How you doing?
0: We had a great time with uh, Carmine Peace. You know, uh, I had yeah. met him before but neither of us remembered, <laughs> but, I, but I, you introduced me to him and he was like, Hey, nice to meet you. And I'm like, Hey, nice to meet you. And then I found a picture of us together. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway,
4: you can probably tell uh, today's episode. We, we spent some time with Carmine in peace. Uh, he is really, truly a rock star. Come on. I, you know, his book is out, Stick It, My Life of Sex, Drums and Rock and Roll. Uh, and I would have to say that he is probably the only other guy that's in the same league as Gene Simmons when it comes to crazy stuff on the road and crazy girls and everything else. But I'll let uh, you have to read the book. Cause we didn't really talk to him too much about his book. And then part two of this episode uh, we talk with a guy named David Fishoff. Now, not, you know, might not recognize the name, but he's the guy behind the rock and roll fantasy camp. If you've heard about that, where you, you, you go to camp for a week, and you have like Roger Daltrey as a counselor or if you're a guitar player you have uh you know Joe Perry's your counselor if you're a drummer Alan White is your can- whatever it is and you you do that um uh, and it's for like regular people who want to be rock stars for a week and it's turned out to be a big hit they have a movie out now uh, based on it and uh it's in the top 10 and so he talks about that. He's also the guy, he's, he's a very innovative guy. He's the guy who who came up with the idea of putting Ringo with other musicians and calling it Ringo Star and the All-Star Band. And that's been going on for 25, 28 years now. And also, uh, he actually started as a sports agent. You'll hear all this in his, in his conversation. But he's the one that decided uh, to put the Monkees back together in the mid-80s. Uh, and that sort of got all these other groups excited enough to start reforming Uh, so very innovative uh, guy so you'll hear Carmine in the first half uh, and um, Anita and I will be here to guide you along Carmine
3: hello how you doing I'm good how you doing
4: okay we're in Florida
3: Mm Mm-hmm. what part down near West Palm
4: this is Anita my
3: co-host hi Anita your co-host how are you I'm fine. Thank you.
4: Good. I'm a big Cactus fan, so that's an added that's right. plus. You
3: heard the record, right?
4: Yeah, I heard it. Now, let me ask you my big Cactus question that I've been waiting for 30-some okay. years to ask. Okay. First of all, I love the first album, Parchment Farm, Let Me Swim, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Okay, then you had the second one, and then the third and you know, one.
3: Let, and you know Let Me Swim was, uh, the beginning was Eruption. You know that, right? No, I didn't. Yeah. If you listen to The Beginning of Let Me Swim and The yeah. Beginning, and you listen to Eruption... It's an extended version of the intro to Let Me Swim.
4: Hmm. Okay. And,
3: and the guys in Van Halen told me that when I first met them years ago.
4: Great to know.
3: Yeah. Okay. Anyway.
4: Yeah. So then, then you do the live album. Then the band disappears. And then uh, I was a DJ in upstate Pennsylvania. I got hired to MC this concert. And I had gotten the album for this band. And it's Son of Cactus. What's with that?
3: Oh. What's
4: with that? Come
3: on. Well, that's a son of cactus. That's what it was. What's the connection? Dwayne Hitchings was the connection. Right. He was my uh, good buddy. He was in the cactus band, the second cactus band. Right. And Pete French, Dwayne Hitchings, weren't me and Tim. So when me and Tim went with BBA, you know, Dwayne said, do you mind if I keep cactus going? We said, no, you know, better keep it going than making it die. We did all that work to get it going. Yeah. So he, they did a deal on Atlantic, right? And it was the son of Cactus. Okay. Actually, it was a cool name. <laughs> you
4: know? Just, I hadn't encountered that, but I, you know, I was supposed to introduce them at this concert. And I thought, son of, where's, the, where's Carmine? Where's, you know? <laughs> yeah. anyway. Well, let's listen to Cactus from the first album, and then listen to Eruption by Eddie Van Halen. And this song is Let Me Swim, and then you'll hear Eruption. like carmine is right they're the same
0: yeah but i'll tell you i think that uh eddie van halen was playing with the kind of passion that you play when you're paying homage to somebody Mm. rather than just ripping it off yeah do you agree i agree i agree
4: All right. So anyway, let's get back to part two of our conversation. More talk about his uh, various bands, including the highly claimed group uh, with Jeff Beck, Beck Bogart and App Peace and his time with Rod Stewart. You know, he co-wrote uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy and Young Turks and a bunch of other stuff. But he'll talk about that, I think, in part three. So here's part two of uh, our interview with Carmine Appice. So anyway, I interviewed you when the last Cactus album came out, and I think you told me you got you got together to do the album because you were going to do some festival dates in Europe, and uh, and that's...
3: Was it uh, with the Black Dawn album? Yeah, we did do a bunch of dates. We went to Japan and Europe right. and all that. And with the new band that's yeah. on this new album, we went to Europe, and a bunch of dates, a lot of dates in America.
4: What's this thing with you in Japan? Because, you know, back, uh, BBA was big there. I mean, you, you've well, always played there.
3: Well, I think it was from. It stems from BBA. Uh, we were one of the first bands to play the Budokan after the Beatles and sell it out. You know, and uh, you know, uh, since then I was always big in Japan. And as a matter of fact, when I went there with Rod Stewart, a few years later, we played Nagoya, the first gig. Told Rod that I'm um, pretty well known in Japan. He knew I was well known because he we toured with Cactus with the faces and I, every night I did a solo and everybody loved the solo and, you know, the audiences loved it. So when I joined Rod, he said, you'll have a solo every night. And that's when I came up with the name of peace instead of apathy, because everyone called me a piece. And Rod said, we need one way to say your name. You're like three different people now. I said, okay. So, so he uh, would say, come on a Peace on the drum. So when we played Nagoya, he came out after my solo, and the, and the audience response was so amazing. He was saying, Carmine on a piece on, on the drums. He couldn't even hear himself from the applause and the screaming. So after the show, I, he called me up to his suite. He used to always have the suite on the top of the hotel. I used to call him Howie. He goes, why don't you call me Howie? I said, it's like Howard Hughes. You're always up in the top. And you can't come out. You know? mm-hmm. So uh, he said, wow, that was unbelievable, your response. I said, dude, I told you I'm, I'm I have a big name in Japan. Mm. So he said, well, we're going to do a a press conference in uh, Tokyo and I want you to sit next to me because I'm sure you'll get a lot of questions. And he was right. I did get a lot of questions and and it went on. It was great. So ever since then, you know, I mean, I did my guitars, project in Japan, I did, uh, uh, so many different things in Japan. All
4: right. So, uh, after that was over, Jeff did what? Did he? Is that when he did Blow by Blow?
3: Yeah, and I was involved in Blow by Blow, but then, you were. Then Your fingerprints are on there. Where? Well, in songwriting, which he doesn't admit it today, you know. But but you know, I mean, it just I went in and I played on it with him, and during BBA days, I turned him onto that jazz rock stuff, you know. And uh, so when when the BBA broke up, I went to England and I said, hey, let's do something like. Vishna, you know? And uh, so we started working on material. I rehearsed with him, with Max and Phil Chen and all that. And we I recorded five or six songs with, uh, with George Martin, which I have, like, on my computer. Some of them were left and some of them were, you know, replaced. But uh, we couldn't come up with a deal, you know? Like, he wanted his manager wanted it to be a Jeff Beck album. While we were doing it, we were talking about either a Jeff Beck album or a Becca Peace album because, you know, we just come out of the BBA thing. And it was big, you know, and it made him bigger and it made me bigger. So a a Becca Peace album would have been cool. But uh, they wanted it to be a Jeff Beck album, not a Jeff Beck group, just a Jeff Beck album. And so we said, can we do a featuring or something? And they, they couldn't come up with something. Then I just realized le- recently I did all that work over there for months and I never got paid a dime,
0: you know. It seems to be the way it went a lot of times.
3: Yeah, well, not, not for me usually. I had managers, you know, that that was supposed to take care of that, but uh, but you know, we, so, we ended so, up friends. So you're first, first, so you're
0: in Brooklyn. You're a kid. Was it a musical household? Did you did you know of,
3: about uh, Buddy Rich being from Brooklyn? How did yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my cousins. My cousin was a drummer. Every time we went to his house, I played his drums, and I'd go home and bang on the pots and pans, and all that stuff. And then, um, and then at what I age did you got toy drum sets and broke them? Then I got a, a small real drum set, and I uh, was into it. And then I started taking lessons. And then uh, I got a real drum set, and then I started doing gigs. When I was seventeen, I got out of high school. I was making back in nineteen sixty four like two hundred dollars a week just playing gigs, and then working all week in in something in New York City, making $45. I finally said to my my father, I said, look, I work on a weekend and make $200 cash. And I work all week. I get up at six, five and six in the morning, take the train, go go to Manhattan, work all day, get back at seven, five days a week. I come home with 45 bucks. I said, what would you do? 45 or 200? And he said, well, I guess the 200 sounds better. I said, thank you. So that was the last time I had a day job.
0: So the Pigeons, is this when the Pigeons were formed? No, no,
3: this is, this is uh, I had all different bands. I had the Vidal's, I had Thursday's Children, I had the the. Uh, what was it? the Zany Manhattans, all these things. But we used <laughs> to play gigs with Thursday's Children in the clubs, and Jimi Hendrix was in the clubs too, in New York, called Jimmy James. You know, we used to play all that. So by the time I was 17, I saved up enough money in 1964 to buy a brand new 64 Chevy Supersport where I put money down. My parents co-signed. I made the payments. So that was the beginning of my my credit and my financial career by doing that. And I was very proud of the fact I was still in high school and I had myself a brand new car that I bought from playing drums.
0: So you had a singular focus. (laughs) This was always
3: what you were going to do. There was never a doubt. Well, at that point, After I finished doing that job, then I said, Look, I had a drum teacher. He used to make a thousand bucks a week back in 64 teaching, playing gigs. I said, That's what I want to do. And I remember one time when I met uh, Hendrix, we played a gig together. He was Jimmy James. And we went up to this uh, in, in the Upper West Side where we have an apartment now. It was Panic in Needle Park. I don't know if you know that movie. Yes. It was all drug prostitutes, right. uh, low life people. So we're, during a, during a break where we both had a break and they played some records, we went up to some black hookers, uh, or she'd say female Afro American hooker, <laughs> to be proper today, to her apartment. We were smoking some pot, and uh, Jimmy would look out the window and he said, "Man, I want to make it one day in the record business." And I said, what about you? I said, I just want to make a living, you know, playing <laughs> drums. I'm good. And the next time I saw him after that, he was in London. He was Jimi Hendrix. And I was in Vanilla Fudge. And I told him, uh, and he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm in Vanilla Fudge. He goes, man, I love the fudge. We were the pigeons. And, and Atlantic didn't like the name, the pigeons. So he said, you like White Soul, Vanilla Fudge. I said, oh, that's a cool name. And everything was strawberry alarm clock and stupid names. So Vanilla okay, Fudge so- in, you know?
0: All right. So that's the real story of how the band got the name, not from yeah. a girl whose nickname was Vanilla Fudge because she liked ice cream. No. OK. Yeah. So, Carmen, let me ask you a question. You know, they're
4: they're making a movie of uh, Ahmed Erdogan. You got any Ahmed Erdogan stories?
3: Uh, they're making one or they made it?
4: No, they're making a, a movie of his life. No, I want to ask you if you knew, had any Ahmed Erdogan stories everybody that was on well, it yeah, does. yeah, I,
3: I do. I mean, uh, I, I think that the, you can tell? Erdogan, the one I have actually ruined our career, even though he was the guy that signed us in the first album. Did amazing. And then him and George Morton, Shadow Morton, came up with this idea to do this concept album as a second album that ruined our career. All we had to do is what we did on the first album, hmm. not this huge, ridiculous concept album. As we were doing it, we were saying, what the hell are we doing? And Shadow would say, I oh, don't worry, this is going to be the biggest thing since the Sergeant Pepper. And it ruined our album. It ruined our career. We had to rush in and do a third album. And it was him and Ahmed that did it. So you're so you're at home and you're growing up and you
0: get your first record. You, and everybody remembers their first album. What was your first
3: album that you ever got? Gene Cooper and Buddy Rich album, drum battle album. And everybody thinks I'm going to say the Beatles you no, know, something like that. You know, I thought the Beatles sucked back then. To tell you, the truth. you know. Based on, they, they sucked. I mean, come on. I was into James Brown and, and horns, and when they came out. By the time they came out, and you know, by the time they came out, it was, I was already playing. And, and I was you were brought up on Motown and doo-wop and R and B. Yeah, I, I, I used to sing doo-wop in, in the streets of Brooklyn. I used to sing it and and and, uh, and play. And we used to play R&B and rock, and we never played Beatles. Right. When they came out, we used to put on Beatle wigs and, and sing dirty versions of their song at weddings. Not until they did Revolver did I take notice. I did take notice of Day Trip, which was pretty cool. But I listen now to the early Beatles, and, and I know, I realize, you know, with the songwriting and stuff, that they're amazing and what Ringo has done as a drummer, you know, but back then, you know, it didn't, it didn't even appeal to me at all. And then choosing to cover the Holland, Dozier Holland song. Well, you got to understand what was going on in Long Island. And everybody was doing what we call production numbers It started from the rascals, you know, so, and then the vagrants started and they were drawing crowds of 2000 people in my manager's club in Long Island, and then uh, Mark and Timmy came into a club where I was playing in Jersey, and they said they want to do this new kind of music, you know, with production numbers they called it. And they needed a drummer who could sing, a drummer who can play technically, and had a good right foot, you know, and all that stuff. So I went out and played with them, and I said, "Wow, these guys are great." Mark Stein's voice is unbelievable, I and mean, keyboard player and Tim Bogan's bass player. So I joined them, and and then we went to see the vagrants, so I knew from before, because when I was playing the R&B, the vagrants opened up for me in a, in a club. I had a big six-piece band with horns and everything. We used to wear pinstripe suits and hair teased up and stuff. And the vagrants opened up for us. And, uh, and they looked like grungy Rolling Stones, you know? They got big by doing these production numbers. And Leslie West they used to sing like, respect, slow down. They did not satisfaction, slow down. So we started taking the concept, but then we took more of a concept of listening to the lyrics and trying and match the lyrics to the music. So, like, you keep hanging on when it was done, like, set me free, why don't you, babe? You know, it was hurting lyrics, but it sounded like a party, a happy song. So we took it down and gave it the emotion. So we did that with all the songs we, we did, and that was our concept. And we had four voices and four-part harmony with the other bands in that era, and only had maybe one voice, maybe another harmony. But we had the harmony, we had the playing, you know, we were, were the best of the musicians. And that song was a one-take mono. and we yeah, recorded, I read that. I, I would say seven it. and a half minutes, that changed my life.
4: So in, in this uh, part, Carmine uh, talks, uh, again, we start with You Keep Me Hanging On, because it was a hit twice, and then uh, how Rod Stewart got caught when it was revealed that the song he co-wrote, Do You Think I'm Sexy, was stolen from a Brazilian musician, Jorge Ben. We get to the bottom of it. So here it is. Here's Carmine piece, part three.
3: Well, it was a hit the first time, but a small hit. Right. You know, it started it off for us. And then uh, July, uh, hit the charts July of '67. And I I joined the band November 66. I always say to him, see, I joined the band. Nine months later, he had a a record on the charts. (laughs) But we're working on a new track now called Stop in the Name of Love. that has Tim on it. It's the last thing Tim ever recorded. And it's got the same kind of power and the same lyric concept. And uh, we're going to try and release it on the same date that we released Hanging On in June. And if we do, it's going to be the 55th anniversary of the band releasing their first single with tribute to Tim and is Mary this, Wilson.
4: Is this the uh, Supreme Fudge project?
3: It, it will be. You know, Right now, it's just a single. Okay. If it goes well, then we'll do a whole album. Wow, that's great. That's great. I love is the
4: way, nice? I love My World is Empty on your reunion now. I, thought
3: that I liked way. it too. That was Jeff Beck on guitar. Right. JB Toad. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we we ended up being friends all through, you know, these times, you know, and even people get ready. I was involved in people get ready. So, what do you think? um, But of course, I got no credit, and I never got paid for that either.
4: (laughs) But wait a minute, let's uh, since we're talking song credits, uh, do you think I'm sexy? Now, what did you write, the music or the lyrics?
3: No, I didn't write lyrics. Okay, so you wrote the
4: music. So I wrote music. What happened with the Jorge Ben thing?
3: Well, we, they, that was something that Rod heard. You know, it was a line. That, that was the line. And Rod heard that. And she used to go to South America for the um, soccer matches. So he must have heard it somewhere, and it came up, and so they worked out. They worked it out, you know. That's that's I mean, the. I don't know how they worked it out, but they yeah. worked it out somehow. Well, apparently well, well, he gave the He
4: gave his uh, the money that to, to, to he, the, he, the UN or something, right? Well, he well no. Did, well, the, Rod the, gave the, his
3: money for the for yeah. for the. I don't know for forever, but for a certain release of it, he gave to the yeah. uh, UNICEF. Right. 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 But he but he sued for writing. He sued for writing
0: credit. And Rod gave it to him.
3: Yeah. No, yeah. not on that song. He, he worked out something else where he gave him credit for another song on the next album. Oh, okay. Oh, because it was already
0: out and he couldn't do yeah, it. Yeah, it was done. It was already I see. done. You know? Okay.
3: So they figured what it would have... It was oh. me, me, Rod, and my buddy Dwayne Hitchens, who was in Cactus. Son of Cactus. hmm Yeah, you because know, he... <laughs> He was the keyboard player that had a studio that I went to when I had the the chord structures and everything. I said, you'll make this sound better. And we presented Rob with a full demo of it and he loved it. And that's how we got it. And Dwayne participated in some of the writing. So he got, he got his share, which started his career off as a writer. He also wrote, we together wrote Young Turks. And then he wrote Infatuation with Rod and a couple other things and Alice Cooper and, all kinds of people
0: because the stones had put out miss you right right
3: and And that was that was what rod wanted he said to the band i want a song like miss you missing you whatever well it's
0: hard to it's hard to remember how big that whole disco movement was it didn't really matter who you were everybody it
3: it was huge. but it's funny enough when we first recorded it with three guitars three guitars dwayne hitchings on keyboard bass drums. It was massive, it sounded really rock, you know? And then Tom Dowd said, okay, now let me do my thing. And he put Tom Scott on there, he put David Foster on there, he put an orchestra on there playing the line. He put uh, Jim Cregan's wife, who was uh, uh, Linda Lewis, who was an English singer. Anyway, so Linda Lewis sang the height, like two octaves up of that line. So before you know it, instead of being on one big 24 track, we're on two 24 tracks filled up. So when you do that, the whole sound shrinks. And it sounded more disco-y rather than rock. But, you know, we were all a bit disappointed. And if you watch the video, like, I didn't even know the drum fills yet, you know, because, you know, we had just recorded it. And uh, I never, you know, write anything down where I'm going to play exactly the same thing twice. Every take we did, the drum part was a little different. But when it came out went to number one in so many countries, I was like flabbergasted, so it dropped. You know, I remember we were in Australia when I went to number one in America. He said, okay, our song's number one. We got to buy the band and crew dinner tonight. It costs $3,000. <laughs> so I said, you're... I didn't make a dime on it yet. You know, I mean, I'm putting out $1,500 for a
0: dinner. And in the final part of our conversation, uh, Carmine recounts his uh, meeting with his idol, Buddy Rich. And uh, all you have to do is go on YouTube. Uh, Buddy Rich and celebration is a good one to start. And if you just want to see why, he's so many, not just Carmine's, but so many drummer and musician's Oh, Carl title. Palmer says the same yeah, thing. Yeah, just, just so come on things. YouTube and you won't believe it. It looks like it was done by, with special effects. So here's Carmine. So what do, you, uh, what do you remember about the Zeppelin tours? What do you want to know? <laughs>
4: first time you saw them, I mean...
3: Uh... Well, we, first time we saw them, we, we thought they were great. They weren't supposed to be on the show. The show was already sold out. Vanilla Fudge and uh, um, Spirit, Spirit, Iron Butterfly. Who? who No, Spirit, and uh, it was in it was in uh, Denver. Yeah, seven thousand five hundred seat place was sold out. And Barry Faye, the the promoter, said to our agent, who was their agent as well, "We don't need him." She says, "Come on, man, it's only fifteen hundred dollars for Led Zeppelin. (laughs) We don't need him." So he said, "I'll tell you what we'll do." You pay seven fifty, and Vanilla Fudge will pay seven fifty because we were making big money then, you know. Right. So they said okay. So they came on and played, and we thought they were good. But we heard the album before, and I heard John Bonham's foot on "Good Times" last time, and, when, and and I said to him, "Wow, that's great football, man! Where'd you get that?" He said, "I got it from you." I said, "Not from me. I don't do that." And he pointed out on one of my albums, which we had three albums out at the time where I actually did it, you know? Except I didn't do it like that. He did it repetitively. I did it like twice. And he just took the concept and, you know, as drummers do, you take a concept and you make it your own. So we loved him. And then he wanted a drum set like mine. And, you know, from seeing him live, I said, man, these guys are gonna be big. they were really good, you know? So I called Ludwig and I'll never forget this conversation. And I was just with Bill Ludwig third, who was part of the Ludwig family. I said, "Listen, we've got this band opening up for us. They're really good. Their name's Led Zeppelin. I think they're going to be big." <laughs> he wants an endorsement. And I always say that's an understatement of like five or six decades now, you know. So, so then he got the same exact drum set as me, and uh, we went on tour the next year. Six months later, and they were as big as we were. You know, just off that first album, they just released the second album that had the big drums on it, and we both played the same drum set. I often wondered how weird that was when, like, they went on first and they played his drum set, and then they take his drum set off and they put my drum set up. Yeah. Probably said, hey, why'd they just take the drums off and put the same drum set up?
4: <laughs> you you uh, played yeah. with them also on the uh, 40th anniversary of Atlantic, right? They played there, and you and been all- Oh, the they played there,
3: yeah, but John was gone already. Right. Yeah, it was his son played Right. And yeah, we played that, with Rascals and everything.
0: So your eighth we, album, Out Through the Indoor? Mm-hmm. So um, whose idea was that, and what was the concept behind that? What was the well, thinking well, process? Well,
3: that was our manager, who's still managing this, Tom Vitorino. He said, you guys are great at doing you know, these arrangements. Why don't you do an arrangement album on one artist? You know, so, you know, we were thinking about the who or the maybe the doors and make the doors more soulful sounding. And then then he said, well, what do you do is Led Zeppelin. So you guys are like really close friends and you guys had a lot of relations and similarities. I said, "Okay, that's a good idea. So you fudger size. We did it. Their songs. Yeah, we did it. So it came out with a label in Europe and went out of business. Right. You know, and then so recently, you wouldn't have done
0: it if he hadn't even that was nothing the band would have ever done if it wasn't the suggestion well, we would have just done we had a record
3: deal we just would have done like what we always done, you know like it was his idea to come up with the supreme fudge thing mm-hmm. as well you know he's a he's a visionary kind of guy that's
4: a cute idea I like that
3: yeah, so it's supreme fudge and there'd be five supreme songs, two or three r and b songs, and then maybe a couple of originals. Did you ever hear from Holland Dozier Holland or any yes. of the, well, the Supremes? Oh yeah, uh, we heard from uh, Mary Wilson, rest in peace. You know, yeah. said, we're going to dedicate it to Tim and Mary as well because they died three weeks of each other. I got uh, to meet Mary. Uh, she loved it. She yeah, loved she it. She was
0: lovely. Holland
3: yeah. Dozier Holland told me at a Guitar Center, uh, you know, the uh, Rock Walk of Fame that we used to do there. I was on mm-hmm. the board of directors for them, and they were getting inducted, and they said. I just got to tell you your version of you keep me hanging on was the best version anybody has ever done. Great. You know? And I said, wow, thank you, man. coming from you guys. That's like, <laughs> wow. You know, right. cause you know, they, we were like big fans of them. Their, their songs are so great.
0: I remember what I wanted to ask you
3: about your meeting with buddy rich. Right. How did that happen? Well, uh, I was doing drum offs in, uh, L.A., you know, the Guitar Center Drum Off, I started. It was called the Carmine Piece Peace Drum Off for five years. And the second one we did, um, my manager was friends with his manager. Uh, actually, it started out with my manager uh, was friends with this club owner at the Starwood, and Buddy was playing the Starwood, and my manager said, oh, we're going to hook up a gig where you play with Buddy at the Starwood. I said, get out of here. I'm not playing with Buddy Richard at the Starwood, you know. <laughs> He said, no, no, like you play with his band and he can play with a band you put together. So against my will, they they convinced me to do it. And then it fell apart. <laughs> so then, Understandable. So then I went to the gig and I met, I knew his daughter, you know, and, and his daughter went, came up. We were in the VIP, me and my brother, and his daughter came out said, oh man, I can't believe you came. You know, my father thinks you're, you're, one of those assholes that are challenging him to a drum battle like ginger Baker. I said, no, man, I didn't charge him. Yeah. I told her the story. She goes, Oh, that's it. She goes, come in, come meet buddy. I said, no, nah, not if he's pissed off at me. So that's not she goes, to no, it'll that. be all right. So she says, come on in. So I said, Vinny, you come with me. So Vinny comes with me. we go in there. And buddy says, Oh, Hey, hey, Dad, and Buddy, she called him. Buddy, this is Carmine. He was going to play with Oh, you mean the guy that challenged me to a drum battle, blah, blah, blah? I said, look, I didn't do that. And I told him the story. He said, that's it? I said, yeah. He says, you smoke? I said, no, I don't smoke. He goes, do you smoke? I said, no, I don't smoke. He goes, but do you smoke? I said, what do you mean, pot? He said, yeah, I smoke pot. It goes, good. He reaches in his pocket and takes out a chocolate joint, a wrap (laughs) joint, lights it up, takes it here, gives it to me. I take it, I'm giving it to Vinnie, I, I'm going, I can't believe this, I'm smoking a joint with Buddy Rich. And I give it to my brother, he's thinking the same thing. And then he goes on and plays and we were like smashed, you know, and so we became friends. So then we were gonna do a an album together, direct to disc with Stanley Clark producing with that concept, me playing with his band, him playing with my band, we're never, we couldn't get all of us together. So
4: I just want to thank Carmine, Carmine piece. Great guy. We love having him on. We're going to have him on in the future. His Led Zeppelin stories, he could have gone on forever and ever. we we'll probably do a whole episode just with him and that first Zeppelin tour. But we've had him on before. He's a great guest. So anyway, let's turn now to our second guest. This is a guy named David Fishoff, And we're going to start with a discussion of Rock Camp the Movie. Now, it's rated 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, so, you know, it's uh, it's, it's got some, some good reviews. So, anyway, here is uh, David Fishoff and a discussion of the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp.
2: Artists love to give back. They realize their success is based on the fans. And that's how I came up with the idea of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. It's very easy to forget where you're from. Once Roger started doing it, it opened up the door. Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp became part of pop culture. Just like that.
1: Welcome to Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp.
4: Okay, this person can play, this person can kinda play. You would have a 15-year-old kid playing drums and a dentist on guitar. If this band were a real
2: band, it would be the weirdest band ever, but cool. A lot of really good players come through one guitar player was shredding like a mother and I'm thinking, what are you? He goes, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I'm going, wow. I want every rock star to do what inspires them.
0: I had to experience it.
2: If Bob Dylan and Gene Simmons and Jimi Hendrix auditioned for The Voice, you think we'd make
3: it? Oh, it's fun, huh? You think we'd make it? Nice but get with him. It's great, huh? Paul Stanley. Same. Reminded him. Buddy miles
1: hey babe i'm in the middle of a vocal thing ready i'll call you back okay
2: <laughs> looking forward to another good bashing of rock camp i've reconnected with my joy of
1: playing
0: i singing for the first time on stage it's
1: a very special thing that moment for me and for him it's real
2: I can't think of a more fun thing to do. I mean, it's better than stamp collecting. Do you like the movie?
4: Yes, I love the movie. So Great. let's let's talk about this movie. Okay, let's go. First of all, you did the, you did the, the, the Rock uh, Camp TV show, which was on VH1, which was like a number one show there, right? Yeah. Okay. The course. camp has been exploding. I know you've been going all over the place with it, and now you're doing uh, uh, corporate stuff and everything. Now you're doing the movie. So how did the idea behind the movie...
2: So Jeff bro, and I hadn't spoken for a long time. When I was doing Dirty Dancing and Jeff was running, as a live tour, Jeff was running VH1. Right. And we had gotten together and um, he, um, you know, basically we were friends from bed. And then he contacted me about eight years ago and said to me that, he says, you know, you got to make this into a film. And um, I really want to make a film out of this. Right. And I said on one condition, I said you gotta keep me out of it. Let's do it about the campers, let's do it about the rock stars. Right. And it's a great story to tell. So we did. And but he, he fortunately made a deal, but he came back to me after two years. He says, Everybody wants your story and your rock and roll fantasy camp. So I said, Okay, I'm gonna do it, but I, I really didn't want to. I'm you know, Denny, you know, I did Ringo's tour for many yeah. years and he always he always promoted Say promote the other artists. So an interviewer would come in and would say, "It's for Nils Lofgren." You know, he, right. he would give it to They said, "Well, give it to Nils. Give it to Joe Walsh." He's, you know, he always wanted to give it to everybody else. So I, I felt like, you know, I wanted to really promote everybody.
4: You're making all this stuff happen. So did it turn out the way you hoped it would have?
2: Well, I, I, has, I have to tell you, after how many times you go to a film and you see it, uh, you see a trailer, right. and then all of a sudden you go to the movie and you're so disappointed. The trailer's so amazing. Yeah. That's what Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp is. I can never make um, a movie I could, or a trailer to tell you how amazing it is. So right. I, I'm so happy with the film. It, you know, it did take five years. Um, and I think what, what happened was when Doug Blush came in and he said, David, stay out of the kitchen and let me bake the cake. That's what it turned around.
4: So let's talk a little bit about the history, because I, I was at the uh, the original couple of camps that you had, and I, I thought it was brilliant and everything. And I watched the whole thing grow. What are you, 25 years in
2: now? 25 years. Yeah, 25 years. And let me tell you something. It, it hasn't been an easy 25 years. You know, we went through an economy going down. We also have the fear factor, you know, right. how many people, um, you know, didn't, who did, signed up for jo- uh, Jeff Beck and then right. – and said, um, I, "I can't make it. I'll do the next one." Um, oh boy! You know, the biggest problem you have at rock camp is is the fear factor. People are scared to come, and that's why I love the film so much because I really wanted to show people not to be scared that these rockers will really help you achieve right. your goal.
4: And now you've uh, you pivoted. You're doing master classes. That was
2: brilliant. I kept wanting to find a way during COVID to relate to the campers because mm-hmm. you know, and I've always wanted to go online. So I've been really working on it for a, a years and thinking maybe I could do lessons with these people. Maybe I can do, um, I could come up with different uh, you know, ways to connect. And, and, and back in June, I'd said, you know, let, let me, let me try to do a masterclass. And I called Mark Farner and I said, would you do it? And Phil's Cavalleri. And they both said yes. And, um, I have a great host. I have a Brit lightning from, uh, the band Vixen. Right. Um, she's really a really smart musician, and, and um, she's been hosting them. And we've done 160 of them. Wow. You know, you're talking about a library, Danny. We've got a library of 160 masterclasses. And these aren't artists promoting a record, these are artists just giving information on what, what drove them, what was their mm-hmm. passion.
4: So uh, of the masterclasses, uh, can you name me the top five popular
2: ones or the Desmond most the so
4: instantly uh, sold out? It's like the uh, label top. sold out when it's sold yeah. out.
2: OK, so, you know, Roger Daltrey, naturally. Right. But Desmond Child's masterclass was so brilliant on songwriting. Right. Yeah, uh, he did great. Eddie Kramer on, on on mixing music is a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Joe Elliott, you know, because he's so popular. Um, Alice Cooper has done great. But, you know, it's just been great to see all these artists connecting. um, And it's not a cameo. It's not a meet and greet. You're actually talking to these people for 60 minutes we advertise, but they all turned out to be two hours. Alice said to me, I got nowhere to go. So keep asking questions. And the information that they have really given out, number one, passion. I mean, that's really what everyone, the common denominator is they all have passion for their careers. And number two, the song. It's all about the song. So, you know, you can have, you know, I mean, it's it's really been interesting. Every night I get off the phone with Britt and I say, wow, I can't imagine what they said, what he said. And it's been really fun and exciting. And we're going to keep doing them after COVID too.
4: How how the, the guitar player lessons must be amazing for the guitarists.
2: Well, they're great for guitarists. You know, you, you have, um, uh, for, you know, Marty Friedman from Japan. And, you know, he's playing away and, you know, giving people and, um I, I loved um you know the for Priest, um the guitar R- Richie. Right. He's somebody we're all gonna play together, but let me but we're gonna trade licks. So and they're trading licks. You know, I'll yeah. play this lick, let me hear your lick. And they they all pull out the guitars and they're they're fun. Tonight we have Gary Howie. it should be amazing.
4: Who else is coming up on the master classes? So
2: we have Gary Howey, oh, we have oh Randy Bachman. Right. A oh, great class.
4: storyteller. One of the great, great.
2: storyteller. I mean, his stories, I, I, he, he walked into my camp about 10 years ago. I was at Abbey Road Studios. I said, I said, Randy, thank you for coming. He said, well, can I get everybody here and you speak to them? And he said, sure. And he you know, pulled out a guitar. I was mesmerized how he, how, you know, how he wrote those songs. So he's coming. He's going to do a two-part series. Doug Blush, who directed the film, is going to tell people how to do their own documentaries and be able to guarantee that at the end of four classes, you can enter a film in a film festival. Um, Eddie Kramer is going to mix six songs live. Uh You're going to be able to watch Eddie Kramer in action and talking to you why he's doing hearing. hearing. So, um, and then Joe Elliott's going to come back and do a class and Styx is going to do a class. And, you know, these artists have been doing these classes and they've been donating the money to different charities or to their crews.
4: Some of your favorite moments in the movie.
2: Yeah, my, my favorite moments of the movie, there's so many of them. Um, you know, I, I think he captured everything. He, by the way, it could have been the four hours, you know, you know how they make movies. Everything's right. on the floor, uh, on the cutting floor. I thought Gene Simmons brilliant and the things he says, um, uh, how down to earth he is. Uh, same thing with Paul Stanley. I mean, Paul Stanley. So, uh, Paul, oh, Paul Stanley, um, telling the artist, um, you know, you could have been Miles Davis. Davis you drum like him. Right. And he's choking up. Sammy Hagar, who basically gives away and says, hey, you guys think we know what we're talking about doing on stage here? Um, And and him choking at the end and saying, listen, I realized when I went to rock camp, my life has changed. Mm-hmm. Roger Daltrey saying, I was one of them. I just got lucky. I mean, there's so many moments of the film. I can't tell you that so many people have said that um, you know, they keep watching it over and over again because they want to capture things. And, and that was Doug Blush. He did an amazing job. And, you know, we're 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is, you know, quite exciting.
4: Now, of all the people that you've had over the years, uh, who was the toughest and who still haven't you gotten?
2: And yes, and Joe Perry, getting Joe Perry was amazing because I think I think Joe Perry... Once he saw I got Jeff back, you know how the business is. Yeah. You know, and, and Joe, Joe Perry came and he wrote me a thank you note afterwards. He says, I cannot believe how this affected me. And I, and a week later, I'm writing my book and I'm, I got inspired. And, and so Joe has been back a few times and, um, he's been amazing and, yeah. and what he gives to campers is, is, is so incredible. Um, you know, listen, the late Peter Tork, he was tough. He, right. was top. he called me up and said, "David, I want to do a camp," and um, and I said, "Okay, Peter, but it's a lot of work." And then he said to me, "I can do it. I can do it." And um, he came, and it was really hard for him because you know meeting the fans right. and um, you know just being on top of them. But in the end, he pulled it off. Um, I would say the the ones I want to get. Well, I love that Mick and Keith did The Simpsons, so that's great. Right. My my ultimate would be a Paul McCartney. You know, my ultimate would be. Um, you know any of the Rolling Stones? I mean, well, you had
4: you had Bill Wyman. What was that like?
2: Bill Wyman. Wow, Bill Wyman was amazing. I asked him, I asked him to come for two three hours. He came for twelve, and he didn't want to leave. And it was six o'clock. He was there since nine o'clock in the morning, and and it was like seven o'clock. And I and I wanted to. It was Friday, so Denny Yellin. Right, yeah, right, it was sure. Sabbath. I <laughs> wanted to go for the Sabbath. And I never forget, I turned to Bill and said, well, don't you want to go home? He said, no, I got no rush. My family's away for the weekend. Where else do you want me to jam? And I said, well, I have to leave because it's the Sabbath. And he looked at his watch. He said, well, the Sabbath didn't start in Los Angeles. <laughs> That's how smart <laughs> he was. He was so smart. Bill White was incredible. How about, how about um, oh, one of my favorite is, is um, Nick Mason from Pink Floyd. Right. Um, I asked Nick to come for two three hours. And uh, we had a mutual friends, so he, you know, he agreed to come. And four days later, he's there you know, drumming with one of the bands. He stayed for four days. Right. And he, he said, I never get to play with Mickey Dolenz, uh, the Monkees. He said, right. I never get to play this kind of music. He was so sweet. And then he calls me up and says, do you mind if I write an article about this in GQ? And he wrote an eight-page article about his experience at Rockham. So, you know, it's been great. Once they come... They get it. They walk in those doors and they realize, "I'm just a musician." Let's go.
4: Right. So, uh, what would you say? I, I think I read. So, you, you had like over six thousand participants, or is it higher than that now?
2: No, we've had about six thousand participants, and, and you know it, But again, we've done a, a lot of camps. Um, we're going to continue it. I'm going to try to do. A, a, I want to go on tour with it to do one day camps because you know I realize many people. Uh, don't want, can't travel. They want to perform in front of their families. Right. Um, I'm here in Florida now, trying to get you know Florida. I think is more open, so yeah. I want to try to get camps going in October. At least get one or two camps under my skin um, and get them going. The Scorpions um, said they're going to do a camp for me, but then they will th- be March in 2022. I think the big artists, the older artists, are are a lot more hesitant to come out this year, um, and I think that's basically because. They need a full arena to perform.
4: Right. Well, if you get the Florida one together, let me know. We'll cover it I, live.
2: <laughs> please, you have to come. <laughs> all it, right. So it, let's I have to say to yeah. me, the fun part, the, the, the key part in the film is seeing these four people and right. how their lives change. That's Scott Keller from McKinsey is right. unbelievable. And he's become a great friend. They've all become good friends. But just to see how their lives have changed is just incredible.
4: What's the repeat factor? How many people come back?
2: Oh, well, that's the good news. The good news is, is you know, they come back. Um, you know, people tell me I'm in the cocaine business because once they taste Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, they got to keep coming back. Right. And uh, so the, the 50% come back at every camp the minute I go on sale. The 50% are signed up right away. The The, the fun part is that how many of the artists have said to me, David, you won't believe I saw this person in the front row. I see all your campers in the front row of my shows. And I say, you know why? Because you let them jam with you. So once they're once they, they're not going to sit two rows or five rows back, they want to be on that stage with you. So they're all buying the front row tickets. And so many of them, you know, have have just gone out to make their best friends. As a Kip Winger um, tells me his best friends are from Rock Camp. They all do, even Sammy, um, even the Steven Tyler, I mean, he walked away, his best friend at camp, you know, was, was a gentleman, um, they fly in planes together now. So, right. you know, the relationship that these artists have made at camp has just been incredible.
4: Now, uh, what's the, uh, is there any kind of average, I mean, you probably have a lot of executives, right?
2: You know, you get them now all ages. It really depends on the band. So a lot of, you get a lot of, we, I always do one or two kid bands because there's right. great musicians out there. You want to give this opportunity to and I, I don't run i don't operate kids if they you know i, I want serious musicians so that's mm-hmm. then you get them at you know ages 45 to 60 um again depending on the artist right. but you know if, if you get what if you get uh, tommy lee when he did the bahamas 50 percent were women so i love it that you get you know i want to get more women into rock and roll face game nancy wilson brings over 50% of women Um. So you know, we're thinking about doing some women's only camps too, and um, you know, out now. Um.
4: You had Lita Ford, right? Recently.
2: Oh, Lita Ford's amazing. Yeah, she's great. She's been a counselor. She's been a guest. Um. She's been a tremendous guest at Rock Camp.
4: So, people will get a real idea if they see the movie. But if they decide they want to go, what do they do? I know they can uh, download a, a sample uh, itinerary. What, what, where do people go? What's your website?
2: Chris, get on my email blast because that really gives you all the information rockcamp.com. Um, and rockcamp.com, it gives you all the information, the master classes that, uh, that we're doing now. We'll see if you notice when the new camps will start up. Hopefully, again, like I said, October in Florida, I will let you know. Um, and, um, and the movie rock camp, the movie it's on Amazon on Apple. Um, it's on Fandango. It's all, all, all the, 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 platforms.
4: Well, that's David Fishoff And Anita, do you have a rock fantasy like going to band camp?
0: I would do it under one condition only if, uh, well, obviously it couldn't be both, uh, Donald Fagan and, uh, Walter Becker. Cause you know, Walter's no longer with us, but, if they could bring him back to life and Donald and Walter could uh, perform at the band camp and I could be one of Steely Dan's backup singers. That's my rock fantasy. Okay. I would love to be one of the Danettes.
4: Okay, uh, yeah. So we're going to get into uh, part two of our conversation with David Fishoff. And this is where he talks about uh, getting the idea of putting the monkeys back together and putting them on tour. I, and what yeah. That's like.
0: Well, you know. The monkeys, I can still remember. I mean, I'm making my monkeys 13 year old girl face now, or maybe I was 15, but the monkeys, my first concert, you always remember your first. That's Mm -hmm. what they say. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was in July of 1967 at the Philadelphia Convention Hall. I wore my bloomer dress. I don't Mm -hmm. know if people remember what a bloomer dress Mm -hmm. was. It was like a really short dress, but then you had matching pants. Oh, yes. Like bloomers, because otherwise it'd be like you were in your underwear. Right. And my father drove me to the show and then came back and picked me up and uh, just screamed my ass Mm -hmm. off the whole time. And my mother made cookies and I brought cookies to the monkeys and put them on the stage. (laughs) And uh, yeah, Davy Jones, he was my fave. I was a big fan of the TV show, uh, which started the year before in 66, inspired by A Hard Day's Night which I guess makes sense now with all yeah. the running and the whole thing. Sure. And uh, to get the monkeys together, there was an ad in daily variety in the Hollywood reporter. And it said, seeking folk and roll, not oh. rock and roll, folk and roll for acting roles in a new TV series. And one of the, as we were joking earlier, one of the guys who went down to the audition was Stephen stills and had he not had that horrible tooth thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Bad so this teeth. was before he got his teeth fixed. And if he had had the dental work before, we would never have had Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That's he right. would have been a monkey.
4: That's right. Stephen Stills <laughs>
0: came in fifth.
4: <laughs> he was very good friends with Peter Torre. I
0: don't know why I find that so funny, but yeah. okay. Anyway. All right.
4: So anyway, let's get, uh, let's get to this uh, part two of our interview with uh, David Fischoff. After the 60s rock and roll band
3: The Monkees got off the last train to Clarksville and wound up in Manhattan's Hard Rock Cafe today, Davy Jones, Peter Tork, and Mickey Dolenz, three of the original Monkees, are staging a 20th anniversary comeback. It's something we're all
0: looking forward to With, yeah, you know, great uh, excitement And it's, it's fun, the Monkees was fun It was about happy, there was nothing As Mickey always says, it wasn't brain surgery Of course <laughs> Monkeys, he's wrong
2: about that but. The
0: Monkees was a great fun time, the music was happy And we have that same feeling As we go on to the stage now Even though we're all 20 years older
3: if you're wondering about the fourth member of the group, Michael Neesmith, well, as you can see, he dropped in for the news conference. But the Monkees say he could not make it for their four-month tour. The Monkees play in Atlantic City this Friday, then they'll be back in New York for two concerts, July 16th and July 27th. Three guys who
1: don't monkey around are Peter, Mickey, and Davey. The Monkees are back on the charts and out on a
4: four-month tour, and they told us how it feels.
3: No, oh, I'm scared to death! Whereas I am He's- cool Um,
4: let's talk a little bit about how you got to this point because most people don't know i mean i i i know you were a sports agent when you started but the really the thing that really put you on the map was the monkeys reunion tour correct how did you come up with that and what did that take
2: so i started my career as a Sports agent representing the Lupinellas, Lupinella and Randy Myers and Phil Sims, and you know it was it was it was it was fun, and now sharing office space with um, Shep Gordon and the late Gary Kerfist and we were up on the seventh floor at seventy seventy five Broadway, and Meatloaf's manager was there, um, and Madonna's manager was there, and you know you were walking around this this place and there were gold records and, mm-hmm. you know, artists coming. And I remember the, the, the Ramones coming in, the B-52s to see Gary, his client. I remember Alice coming in to see and, and, and Luther Vandross. And, you know, here I was in the sports business. I was sitting in my office. I would negotiate a contract for a ball player, And then, you know, three years later, you know, I'd do it again. And <laughs> I, I was talking with these players, but it was it, I wanted to be creative. You know, I'm a creative person, I felt. And it, while being a sports agent, it was show me the money. So I decided that, um, let me try my hand in the music business. I saw those gold records on the wall. And uh, I got a call one day from a press agent. And he says to me, are you interested in representing the association? And I wrote the association of what? I never heard the association. <laughs> so he says, well, they're looking for a manager in their music band from the 60s. And, um, you know, why don't you check them out? And I, you know, I called him back and said, yeah, I'm interested. And uh, they said they were with the William Morris agency. So they were looking for a new manager. So I flew to California and the band, I walk into a studio and the band's ready to audition and they want to play for me their new album. And I say, play me the old stuff. That's, how, that's the stuff I'll recognize. And I started hearing cherish and windy and "Never my love. And I remembered all that music for the dentist office. So I said, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. Let me try the music business. And I was honest with them. And, uh, I said, I'll do my best. I know the agents at William Morris because I do book corporates. And uh, they said, okay, go for it. So I started taking on the association. I went to see every agent at the, at the Morris office. And I said, to them, would you start booking this band? And they looked at me and said, oh, you nuts. You're the biggest sports agent in New York. you got all these players. Why are you doing this? I said, I want to be in the music business. And they were all really generous, and they said, "Okay, we'll, we'll help you out." And they all and they booked them everywhere. And I got offers to book a Chicago fest, and then to Grossingers and the Catskills, and then L.A. Now, Denny, I knew nothing about routing a tour, you know, because so I would say, I would say yes to Thursday night at Grossingers at ten o'clock, and then four o'clock to um, LA sh- a show the next day. Because, you know, if you fly from New York to LA at nine o'clock in the morning, you get there at 12 o'clock, you can drive to Orange County an hour later and you can make a show. I knew nothing about sound check gear. I just, so, uh, you know, and every time I called the band, I said, hey, would you, um, uh, you know, should I take this gig? Should I take this gig? And they would say to me, you're the manager, it's your job. So, we, you know, there's seven in the band. They couldn't agree. So I said yes to everything because also Eastern Airlines had this special. You could fly all around the United States for $499, unlimited. So I figured you could go here, there, anywhere. And um, and now I did not realize that when I finally did get a good booking from Chicago to Detroit, you had to go Chicago, Atlanta, Atlanta to Detroit. You always have to be through a hub. Well, anyways, I booked this tour. I looked at the band. I said, I got you a million dollars. And they said, how do you expect us to do this? Well, they did it. Now, at the end of the tour, they lost all this money. I couldn't understand. They needed so many drugs to keep them going through the (laughs) tour (laughs) that they blew all the money. But every band started seeing the association working everywhere. So I got a call from the Turtles. I got a call from Gary Puck and Union Gap. I got a call from uh, Spanky and our gang. And they said, um, will you represent us? Will you represent us? So I took on all these bands, and that's when I created the Happy Together Tour in 1984. I came up with the idea of putting them all in a package and booked 15 shows to William Morris. And the shows started selling um, because people, I only told the bands to play hit songs. The movie The Big Chill came out. And when the movie The Big Chill came out, everybody was into nostalgia music. So back then, you got a great one great review in AP. We sold out every show. And that year, we continued doing the tour for 125 shows.
4: Wow. I bet that it was big at the casinos, too, right?
2: Big in the casinos. It was big everywhere. Fairs. We would do all those fairs, those country fairs. So then I decided, you know what? I'm going to do it again. But the Turtles were so amazing. Flo and Eddie, their show every night was so different. Right. And I said, you know, let me change it around. So that's when I changed it around and added – The grassroots and the birds, Gary Clark's birds were on that tour. Um, And I did again 85 and again 125 shows. And then I'm staying in a hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. And because we were doing, we had a show there. And I would take 30 rooms at the Holiday Inn. So they were so nice. They gave me the suite, which is the whole top floor of the Holiday Inn in Kansas City. And I couldn't sleep. You know, you're in a big room, I couldn't sleep. And I put on the television. And I'm watching a monkey episode. And I said, wow, that was the only show my dad, the Cantor, would allow me to watch. And I said, uh, so I, 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 I saw the monkeys and I remember the monkeys. So I decided that I'm going to go after the monkeys. So I found out Peter Tork was teaching music on the west side of Manhattan. So I invited him to one of my Happy Together shows. And I said, to him, can we put the monkeys back together? And he said to me, you know, we don't even own our name. And he says, but I'll take it as meet Davey and I'll take it to meet Mickey. So I found out that the name is owned by Columbia Pictures. Mm -hmm. I call the phone. I call up the president of Columbia Pictures in L.A. because he was a football fan. I figured they all knew Vince Ferragamo because he took them to the Super Bowl a couple of years before that. And um, he said to me, you got to call a guy in New York. We don't. He controls the name. So the guy from New York said to me, "Um, take me to a Yankee game. So I take him to a Yankee game. And we're sitting at the Yankee game, and he says to me, what do you want to buy this monkey's name for? No one's bought in 20 years. I said, you know what? I just want to buy it for a year just to see, put him on an oldies tour, and and um, let's see what happens. So he gave me a very cheap price because no one had touched in 20 years. Now I got the monkeys. I put the grassroots. I took Gary Puck at the Union Gap, and I take, um, I think, I forgot, Herman Hermits. I brought the Herman Hermits without right. Peter Kuhn. And I'm ready to go on sale. And unbeknownst to me, I'm on the seventh floor 775 7075 Broadway, on the eighth floor and ninth floor at the new fledging network called MTV. And I'm going up and down the stairs with Bob Pittman and, uh, and all the other executives. And I turned to them and, you know, they would say hi to me. Most of, them, most of them gave me a nasty look because the Giants would lose a football game and everybody in New York when the Giants lost and Phil Sims muffed the game you know, they blame it on me because, you know, who knows what they bet. <laughs> so um, I got a call and um, someone said, did you know MTV is doing the Monkeys 24 hours? And I said, no. I said, no. So I run upstairs to Bob Pittman and I say, hi, Mr. Pittman. I'm David Fisher. Oh, yeah, you're the sports agent. Sit down. What, what, what are you here for? And I said, well, I have an idea. I'm doing the Monkeys on tour. And I thought maybe you, I heard you guys are doing. Can we do something together? He says, "I'll make a deal with you. You promote the monkeys on MTV to help build my new fledging network, MTV. That's what he called it, my new fledging network. And I'll promote your your tour on TV. So he promotes my tour on TV. I go on sale, and I think I'm going to sell three four thousand tickets. Like I was so happy to go to tour, I sell twenty eight thousand tickets in Chicago. I sell thirty thousand tickets in Detroit at Pine Knob. It was incredible because we only would sell the the you know, the, the seats and never the lawn. Well, it turned out that every little girl comes running home and they're home at 10 o'clock in the morning and the mothers are yelling at them, where were you all night? Mommy, mommy, I was waiting online line to buy monkeys tickets. I, I, I keep, you know, and the mothers would say, wait a minute, I want to go. So the, they didn't know that it was an old band. They thought it was a new band on MTV. So the first 20 rows were these young girls screaming and then it was their mothers, in the, you know, from 20 to 50. So... Really, that was incredible. That, that that was an amazing year in nineteen eighty six.
4: Did you have any idea? Obviously not.
2: Nothing. But be nostalgia Nothing. for
4: the monkeys.
2: Just nostalgia for the monkeys. It was it was really MTV. They decided, and I didn't know. And um, and it, it was like it was unbelievable. Danny, that was the tour of the year. I mean, we, yeah, I sold that, we sold out Texas Stadium. We sold out San Diego Stadium. We sold out Foxborough. These it was so huge. It was so huge. And I, I tell you, I, I used to rehearse all the shows at the Concord Hotel in the Catskills. Mm-hmm. And I guess I knew and got so big when they told me that they had to hold the show for 20 minutes. The state troopers said there was more traffic on Route 17 driving up to see if they could get in to see the monkeys. And, they, you know, it was incredible how big they were and, um, that year. And, you know, the year, I represented nine of the New York Giants and they went to the Super Bowl. Hmm. so i had a very very busy year that year
4: well i'm going to tell you something i hate to admit it but i will because i'm supposed to be a rock guy hard rock guy i went to that monkeys tour uh at the man music center the promoter was steven Starr, who i know very well and he put me in the front row i went nuts
2: and now he's just now he's a (laughs) restauranteur yep and he's a very successful restaurant and i'll tell you it's so funny that monk, I at the, the man, I, was, I remember being there because I, my family, I decided that I was going to take the family on the road, and I I, I got a tour bus, <laughs> and I parked my tour bus in the back just for me and the family, and that lasted about three days because <laughs> they didn't know what to do on the road, and they were falling over the bus. But I'll tell you, in this film, if you ask me the biggest question that people have asked me, they start off with the monkeys. The monkeys, the monkeys, monkeys. And that leads to why they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, everyone loved the monkeys. The monkeys gave you a feeling of happiness.
4: Why aren't the monkeys in the rock and roll hall of yeah.
2: fame? I know. Bias? Well, you know, that everyone has their political opinion. But the monkeys, Danny, you know, I to this day a monkey song goes on and you just smile. Yeah. And, and, you know, Davey and I were very close. And, yeah, I, I mean, I, I spoke to him a few months before he passed away. He came to see me. And I'll tell you what a type of great guy he was. I mean, you, you knew him, too. He, he loved his fans more than yeah, anything.
4: Absolutely. And,
2: you know, he came come to see me. He showed me a children's book. And about uh, three days later, you get something in the, in, the, in the mail. He sent you a book that he signed to my daughter he just met. Mm-hmm. He was, loved the fans. He loved people. And I think it's a catastrophe now to see Mike Nesmith going out and calling himself the Monkees and touring. Right, right. And, and um, you know, to me, that's, you know, like, that really bothers me. because. Did you see
4: what Mickey's doing?
2: Mickey's re-recording Nesmith's songs. Right. <laughs> I know. It's like, you know, anything to forget Davy Jones. And Davy Jones was... Really, um, yes, Mickey's the lead singer. And Mickey's a right. great guy. Yeah. And, you know, again, obviously Mickey, you know, um, he's Mr. Monkey. But, uh, you know, and he has the rights to do all this. but And they're trying to perpetuate the name. Right. So, you know, God bless them. The Monkeys are just, they're amazing. And I'll tell you something. After that tour, I'll never forget. I was sitting with the, the Rolling Stones uh, um, accountant and Bill Z. And during that tour, he was telling me that, they were motivated to go back out and tour everybody every band said, if the monkeys could do this, so could we <laughs> and it it brought back so many bands yeah. it brought back so many bands
4: well I, I always wondered how that uh monkeys thing came came together i I, I knew the story because I've known David for a long time, but hearing him tell it, it it's just a great story and uh he also did the Ringo star Ringo and the all- star which we're going to hear about now. Uh, and that's a great story, too. I mean, he's had some great ideas, but I just remembered, I, like I said, I've known David for a long time. This is a funny thing I told him. I remember telling him that he he, he made it into the Guinness Book of World Records. And, and he said, well, what are you talking about? And I, I remembered when they re-aired the Beatles' first appearance on Ed Sullivan, I think about 10 years ago. You remember that? They should, did the whole show, the whole hour show. With yes, yes, I do. Yes. It's also out on home video. So. Right, right. Okay, so if you know who else was on the show that day, was uh, Tess O'Shea, the plate guy. Right, uh, love the plate And the, plate was, guy. And the um, Broadway version, which wasn't on Broadway yet, was on in, in England, in London, of Oliver. And the guy who had the lead in Oliver was Davy Jones. So Davy Jones was on that show as well. You know, In it's Russia like a 16 Beatles, year old. Yeah. Wow, so man. I said to David, I said, you're the, you know, you just became the first guy that's managed two people that were guests yeah, first- on the Beatles episode of itself. So, right. He <laughs> well, looked at
0: me like, what? <laughs> well, um, I don't think anybody remembers. Th- anything that happened in their own lives before yeah, they saw the yeah. Beatles. So how would they, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all I remember is, uh, sorry, girls, he's married. And I remember yeah. turning. Well, David Jones
4: remembers mother. it. He remembers it. But oh Well, sure <laughs> he
0: does. Yeah. But I remember I looked at my mother and I I was like, he's married. And my mother's like, you can like him anyway. <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, it's a great story. So you got to hear it. So we're going to play this and uh, then we'll wrap up. This is David Fishoff talking about the genesis of the Ringo Star and the All-Star Band. decides who we'd like to have in the band and the, uh, the, the songs or the hits. And everybody up here has, got great, has great songs. Um, there's really no audition, I don't believe,
2: right? No, the, there's no audition. The criterion is that you've had a hit sometime this, this or the last century. <laughs> and uh, I think, oh, well, I need a keyboard, I need a guitar, and uh, oh, we need a bass player, and we need someone wacky on the far end. And... <laughs> You know, that's how I put it together, really. I mean, there's a lot of management sending names of musicians. I feel some musicians and some musicians mention it. And I just have to sit there in the end and say, well, I think that would be a great combination for Ringo and the All-Stars. And then, I, you know, everyone's contacted. And then we meet up here. And I don't know if it's going to work the day before we get here. But so far, for the last 23 years, it's worked. A little help with my friends.
4: Let's talk about the uh, the Ringo tour. Okay, how did that come about?
2: So I'm doing um, after the Monkees. Um, I came out. I went to see this movie, Dirty Dancing, and I said, "Wow!" I said that reminded me of the Catskills. Why don't I take these dances and put them on the road with with Bill Medley and Eric Carmen, and I'll create a Dirty Dancing live tour. And no one had ever taken a movie out before. Right. So um, I called my friend Dennis Arpa, um, who you know represents probably the best agent in our business to this day. And I said, Dennis, I have this idea to do it. And, and you represent Eric Carmen, And um, so we worked together. I said, come on, let's do, be my partner. Let's do this. So we did this. And the business model was um, I would go get a corporate sponsor. Back in, in those days, the way the business was, I'd find a corporate sponsor who would be interested in putting their name to the tour. And we'd give them tickets. They would get meet and greets. They would get everything and uh, all the corporate access and their name everywhere, um, and then I would sign the artist to x amount of shows, x amount of weeks. Uh, go to an agency like William Morris. Um, in this case, went to Dennis's agency, and um, he would book the tour, and um, and we would book as many shows as we could book. Well, the president of Pepsi was so thrilled that um, how Dirty Dancing did great for them, and because they, uh, Mountain Dew was the corporate sponsor you know, he came to me and he said, Hey, you know, we want you to put together the, um, a tour for us. It's the 25th anniversary of the Pepsi generation. So I came to him with some different ideas. And one of the ideas I came to him was how about I, I try to get Ringo star and put him on the road with, with an all-star band. And, uh, I went back to him and he said, I love it. Let's do it. And, uh, he says, um, and he gave me a lot of money and I, he said, but I want to be a partner. So before you take any money, I want to split it with you. But at least I had a million-dollar offer. So I took the million-dollar offer, and I wrote a letter to Ringo Starr. And um, he had um, took about three, four months to respond. His lawyer called me up and said, you got to come to England and meet him, and you'll pitch your idea. So uh, I went to England, and I remember back then we didn't have cell phones, so I was stuck in my room waiting for a week. Um, you know, because I I was waiting for that phone call when I'm going to come to meet him. So I bought every Beatle book possible to read in case he asked me a question. And I just studied, so he didn't <laughs> ask me one question, but I just read and read and read and read. And I uh, walked into his office and his wife was there, Barbara, and I said, you know, this is my concept, my idea. And I, and I played him a, a, a commercial, you know, like, it's coming live in concert, Ringo and the All-Star Band. And I wanted it to feel what it would what it sound like. Mm. And I brought him an ad for a newspaper ad. And they said, I was thinking the same thing. And, um, and then we talked about some artists and about a week or two later, his lawyer called me and said, he agreed to the deal. And, um, and that's how I put that together.
0: Well, there's been, I think, 14 different lineups. Right. Over the of years. And yes. some of, some of the people, I, I tried to pick the ones that, uh, you probably didn't know or whatever, but uh, Dr. John, who knew? Yeah. Slash, of course, Zach Starkey who mm. ha- was in the band. Bonnie Raitt, Stevie Nicks from the E Street Band, Clarence, Max and Nils. And even mm. Bruce played one show. And I tried to find this somewhere, but I found no uh, recording of this anywhere. Uh, he performed Get Back with Billy Preston who, If you remember, like you know, was on the original, so that would have been, yeah, something really to see. But I can't find that anywhere, but yeah, uh, and that's just tip of the iceberg. If you want to read a who's who of the musicians, uh, th- that played with Ringo, your mouth will drop open. It- it's really yeah. quite a list, yeah. Anyway, I'd like to uh
4: to thank uh David Fishoff. You can get more information by going to his website, rock uh, and roll Go see the movie. You'll have a good time with that. And uh, when uh, the rock camps, David told me, well, you heard him say that when the rock camps start uh, going back in person, because right now, of course, they're doing them online. Anita and I are going to go and we're going to cover it live. So we're going to have all the counselors on and it should be a good time. So anyway, thanks for having uh, for stopping by. Uh, just, you know, if you feel like getting in touch with us, we're at all the usual places. We're on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Um, send us an email if you want. Hello. Hello at therockpodcast.com, and I think I got everything in there. Anita, until next time. Okay, see you then.